Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you turn with me again to the 110th Psalm and read with me the second verse. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Well, congregation, as, as many of you know, on, on Sunday evenings after uh, the worship services are concluded, our, our custom as a family is in to invite members of our congregation and others who would desire to come to some psalm singing at our, at our home. And well, there's something very special. Whenever we sing the book of Psalms, one of the the benefits to singing psalms together in a more informal setting like that is that we go around and we sort of choose our favorite psalms that we love to sing. Of course, all the, the psalms are precious. They are all the word of God, all the, the word of, of Christ. But I'm sure that you've found at different points in your life that particular psalms have have struck you and impressed you in a particular way. And, and maybe you're even able to say that, that while you love all of God's word, there's, there's one psalm in particular that you'd have to say, well, for me, that, that is one that's uniquely precious in, in my life. And I wonder, would it, would it be legitimate to ask the question if, if God has a favorite psalm? Oh, I'm... I don't really know. There's, there's nothing that really indicates that, that he has one. But if I would hazard a, a guess, if there were such a thing, I'd have to say that Psalm 110 would, would probably have to be one of the contenders because this psalm is the most quoted part of the Bible in the New Testament. It's uh, the verses uh, in it are quoted or alluded to um, some 20 times or more in the pages of the New Testament. And time and time again, it's set forth as one that is of unique importance to understanding God's saving purposes in Jesus Christ. Indeed, it's been argued that the entire book of Hebrews, which we uh, read one chapter of uh, this morning, that that entire book is actually a sermon that was preached by one of the apostles expositing the, uh, the first and the fourth verses of this psalm. And if you work through the whole book of Hebrews, you start to see that it's coming back again and again to the great doctrines that are, that are found here. And it's for good reason that this is given the kind of emphasis that it is, because this is one of the messianic psalms. And, and children, I, I wonder if you've, you've heard about that kind of psalm before, a messianic psalm. You see, those are, are psalms that especially point forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Maybe you noticed that in, in verse 1, it was David who wrote this psalm, and and David speaks of God in this way. He says, The Lord, that is God, said unto my Lord, 
sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So here you, you see it speaking about God the Father and, and how when Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, he was invited there. Jesus was invited there with this, this great invitation that he would take that seat of authority as a mighty king. And indeed, as, as you work through this psalm, you, you come to see it doesn't just talk about uh, Christ's glorious office as our anointed king, but also his office as priest. And so I thought that the, the profitable thing to do, since we've come to that part of Lord's Day 12, where we're considering Christ's office as a king and as a priest, that we'd take two sermons to uh, consider the great truths of this psalm. And so in the morning, we will consider Christ's kingly office, and in the afternoon, we'll consider Christ's priestly office. And so, with the Lord's help, I'd like to focus especially on this truth as it's found in the second verse, but we'll also uh, be guided somewhat by the, the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 12. And let's consider uh, three things uh, under, under this theme. First, this king's royal authority. Second, his perfect protection, and third, his eternal reign. So to get us uh, started, let's uh, refer to uh, the back of your Psalters in uh, page 40 and look at what our, our catechism says in Lord's Day 12. So you remember that we began to consider uh, the, the answer to this question, why is he called Christ that is anointed? And the answer was, he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption and to be our only high priest who by one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us. And this is what we'll focus on in this sermon. And also to be our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us. So as we would consider especially what it means that Christ is our anointed king, that he has the office of a king, I'm sure you notice that in that description of this office, it really highlights his authority, doesn't it? Now we understand that uh, when we think about political rulers, there are people in this world who have special authority. There are people who can make laws and, and give commands, who can um, make great decisions that affect nations and communities because they have the ability to command and to exercise authority. And so also it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a king. And this is highlighted for us in, in the words of Psalm 110, verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. 
Now, in order to, in the first place, consider his royal authority, his kingly authority, I'd like to draw your attention to a few things about this verse that tell us what kind of a special king Jesus Christ is. In the first place, we notice in this verse that there is a symbol of his authority, a symbol of his authority, because uh, this is what the Lord Jehovah um, says concerning him in, in this scripture verse. It says, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. The rod. Now, we know from, from different places where this is used that the rod or the scepter is especially a symbol of a king's authority. Now, here in Canada, we have a queen, Elizabeth II, and at her uh, ordination to her office as queen, she would have held one of these great scepters that was very ornate, full full of jewelry and other things. And the symbol of of her authority is in this scepter, in this, this great rod that she is, is carrying. And likewise, in the Bible, kings are said to have their authority represented in this, in this tool that they are holding. And so you see this, for example, in Jeremiah 48 and verse 17, where it's talking about the, the, the king of the Moabites, the kingdom of, of Moab. And there it says, in in terms of the destruction of this kingdom, all ye that are about him bemoan him, and all ye that know his name say, how is the strong staff broken and the beautiful rod? So there's this reference to kings having the rod or or the staff. But it's used... In a, in a particular way when it comes to godly kings. And I think probably the, the most famous rod that we see in the Bible was held by the most famous king that I think you see in the Bible. Now, I'm, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story of Moses, right? Moses was a kind of king. He was someone who was placed in a position of authority as the ruler, as the kind of shepherd of the flock of Israel. And you remember, when the Lord called him to that special office, Moses was was kind of objecting to this. He's saying, well, Lord, you can't send me to these people. They won't believe me. They won't trust me. How, How is it that I could be someone who could lead your people. And well, you remember what the Lord said to him. He said, well, look in your hand, Moses. So he looked in his hand, and, and he at that point was a shepherd, so he had a, a wooden staff, a simple, simple rod that he was using to tend his, his sheep. And what he would, he would use to tend his sheep, the Lord instructed him to, to cast it on the ground, and it, it turned into a great serpent by the power of God. And, but when he picked it up, turned back into a staff. And when Moses goes into uh, the land of Egypt to lead his people, what, what is it that we see that time and time again 
the Lord especially uses Moses as he's holding the staff to bring great and mighty miracles. So there was that great altercation there in the Pharaoh's palace, right? By the power of the devil, most likely. Those magicians, they threw their staffs on the ground and, and, threw their, and they turned into great serpents. But the serpent of Moses that, that came from his staff, it gobbled up those other, those other serpents. And then as the different plagues are brought down upon the nation because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, it, again and again, if you read the book of Exodus, it says Moses lifted up his staff and then a great wind blew into the, the nation, the locusts that would come. And, and time and again, this is emphasized all the way up to when Moses was used of the Lord to bring his people out of Egypt. He said, go to that Red Sea and, and lift up your rod over that sea. And the waters parted. And, and while the children of Israel were able to make their way through by that divine intervention, when he lifted up that rod again, then the waters came down and destroyed the enemies of the Lord. And it, throughout his, his ministry, Moses was carrying this rod. And it was a symbol It was a symbol of the fact that that the Lord was with his people, provided that they would submit to the rule of the one whom God had appointed to be their ruler. This great great staff, symbol of of divine authority. And now you'll notice when there's this prophecy of a greater king, here in in verse 2, the Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Here is a a divine king, one with with even greater authority than Moses. And it almost seems as though this is wrong, doesn't it? After all, the fact that that God, who has said he will not share his his glory with another, here he, he says to a king, Come up here and sit on my right hand. Share my divine authority. Wield this rod from this place of highest authority. How can that possibly be right? That that a mere king, a mere mediator should should receive this honor. Well, the answer is is found in another one of the the messianic psalms that was quoted in in Hebrews chapter 1 as well. And that's Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, where it speaks of, of the Messiah in this way. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest iniquity. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Striking thing. This one who is called the anointed of God is also referred to as God. Thy throne, O God, it says, is forever and ever. And you notice it says, the scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. In the hand of this king, according to these these psalms, there there is this scepter, this symbol of his authority. And I think... Before we, we unpack that, that symbol more, we ought to just step back and say, what a glorious king 
is Jesus Christ. Think of the, the kind of honor that is ascribed to him here. One that would have to be given to one who is true God as well as, as true man. None other can possibly attain unto the glory and honor and power and authority that we see here. Here is a king that is above all other kings, a ruler above all other rulers. This is the kind of mediator in Christ that is revealed here. But of course, the, the symbol has a reference. Wherever we have poetic language like this, there, there is something it's driving at, even if it's sometimes hard to tell what exactly each symbol is. There's usually at least something uh, to give us some indication. And I think that when you look at verse 2, you come to see exactly what it is that this scepter scepter is, or this rod is. Psalm 110, verse 2, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. And so here you have the, the rod or the staff. It's standing for the king's authority, and the, uh, the authority is coming out of Zion. Coming out of that city of the Lord, the people of God. What, what could this possibly mean? Well, here, as, as in other places, the, the reference to Zion is in reference to the gospel church. The church of the New Testament uh, was, that was built on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, as well as the, the apostles and the, and the other servants of the word. And so you see... Uh, similar language used in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 2 and verse 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and he will, we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So it's a very fitting picture, because of course the New Testament church, it really began in Jerusalem. In a way, it began in a special way when the Holy Spirit was poured forth on that small gathering in the upper room at Pentecost. And out of Zion comes all the different nations who would eventually be brought into God's covenant in church. So you have this, this prophecy as well echoed in here. And, and here you, you can see that in parallel, you have the... The scepter, according to David's psalm, is, is probably what Isaiah is referring here as the, the law and the word of the Lord. Now, the word law in, in Isaiah chapter 2, it has a, a broader significance than just the commandments, but it's the, it's the Torah, it's the teaching, it's all of the inspired scriptures. This is what the, the symbol of the rod or the staff of the king is symbolizing. It is the word of God. That is the instrument or the tool 
with which this king extends his authority over the nations. And this is, is echoed for us in, in our catechism, you'll, you'll notice, where it says he's anointed to be our eternal king who governs us by his word. By his word. Is that how we understand this, this book? Is that how we understand preaching? That it is, it is indeed a, a word from God. It is a word from a king. And so it comes to us with authority. Doesn't Jesus say that, that his sheep will hear his voice? It will come to them not, not just as sounds, not just as ideas, but as a personal word of authority. It is the word of a king. It's, it's why in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which we're working through, Paul refers to himself as an ambassador. And he speaks of having received the ministry of reconciliation as an ambassador. So that as he speaks on behalf of his king, he is under authority. He's not to tamper with the words. He's not to inject his own ideas. No, he is on a mission. He is to speak exactly what has been commissioned to him. And so it is to be received as such. And so that is the case. No matter what minister may be addressing you from this pulpit, no matter what, what weaknesses the servants of the Lord possess. Whenever there is the word of God faithfully preached, faithfully explained, faithfully applied, we are to take that as the very scepter of God's chosen king. This is, this is the instrument that the Lord has, has been pleased to use to expand his kingdom, to grow it throughout all the nations. Even since... The glorious gospel was preached by those apostles. How, how many millions of souls have fallen under the sway of his scepter? How many, many nations, even today, are, are continuing to fall under his power, under his influence, as this word of God is spread throughout the nations? And of course, it can't, can't merely be the word itself. For we know that there are people, even in the professing church, those who have the word, word preached unto them. And yet, it is, we fear, so often a bare letter to them. And so you notice that it's especially emphasized in our, in our catechism um, that it says he, he governs us by his word and spirit. It is as the Holy Spirit uses the words of Scripture, as Christ would impress upon us the duties of his commandments, the greatness of our sin, the awesome deliverance of his gospel, Christ and him crucified for sinners, received by faith. And, and as he preaches this word, sinners are brought under his sway. That's something that's, that's emphasized in the text. You'll notice. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength. It's a divine strength that is being spoken of here. It's not a weak word like the words of men. 
It's not just so many fables or, or cunning tricks designed to manipulate people's emotions. No, it comes with divine strength. It's from the Lord. It's from the anointed of the Lord. And so you'll, you'll notice that as it, it goes on in verse, uh, verse 3, it says, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. They shall be willing. You know, I remember when I first was becoming acquainted with the doctrines of grace, what's called the five points of, of Calvinism, coming more from an Ar- Arminian context. And initially, as I was trying to understand it, I, I, I couldn't quite grasp what the Reformed uh, Church was teaching because it, it, I thought that perhaps what it was teaching is that the wills of, of God's elect, that they're sort of overrided, that that really there is no, uh, no voluntary consent to the gospel when it's preached, but rather God, God deals with us almost as though we had no wills whatsoever and, and saves us totally contrary to our wills. And indeed, we, we know, don't we, that apart from God working by his word and spirit, there is always a resistance to the word of God. We are dead in trespasses and sins until there is that great change. But look at what it says here. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. They will willingly give themselves over unto this king. It's like what you see in the canons of Dort, in the third and fourth um, headings of doctrine. It says this about the new birth. This grace of regeneration does not treat men as senseless stocks and blocks. Basically, it doesn't treat them just like they're a bump on a log or a rock or something. Nor takes away their will and its properties. There's still a will. Neither does violence there too. Does not, doesn't take away the will. doesn't do violence to the will. But spiritually quickens, heals, corrects. And at the same time, sweetly and powerfully bends it. That where carnal rebellion and resistance formerly prevailed, a ready and sincere spiritual obedience begins to reign in which the true and spiritual restoration and freedom of our will consist. And as you look at the the rest of verse 3, it, it really emphasizes that the fact that the people who respond to the message of the gospel would so willingly follow after their king, it's, it's really a miracle. So it says, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power in the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. So it's very poetic language here, but... The idea here is that the, the, the mere fact that there should be such a people who are adorned with true holiness, that really strive to obey the will of their king, the fact that this should be so is a miracle of grace. It's likened to the wonder of when you get up in the morning and you happen to see that the grass is just filled with dew. And so all those little particles of dew, they, they just seem to have come from nowhere. And they're, they're multiplied all across the lawn. 
And so it is. It's, it's sort of the idea here is that, that just without warning, completely unexpectedly, these people are birthed into existence by the power of the rod of this king. And it's, it is a striking thing. We look around at the world and we see that it is all enslaved to darkness. We see people walking according to their own wills and their own desires away from the things of the Lord. And yet here and there, gatherings of the Lord's people brought into life from death, brought into light from darkness, God working by his spirit. Congregation, let us never despair of the grace of God. As long as God has given us his word, as long as it is preached, as long as we may pray that it is blessed to our souls. We have no right to despair about the church's mission in this world. We have no right to despair that our labors will be in vain, whether it be for for our precious children or for our loved ones or our neighbors or our spouses or whoever it is that we would yearn that they would taste of the things of grace. There is a mighty king who can translate them into his kingdom of light and love and liberty. So we see, see this, don't we? There is this royal authority that is spoken of here. But I'd also, also reference this. There is also his perfect protection. His perfect protection. And this is, is emphasized for us in our, in our catechism, um, where it says that the same one who governs us by his word and spirit also defends and preserves us in that salvation. Now, the words in the enjoyment of that are in brackets, they're not actually in the original of the Heidelberg Catechism, and um, I haven't been able to figure out why it is that uh, they're included in this, this printing of the Catechism. But in any case, it, it holds together very clearly if you simply say that the same king who governs us by his word and spirit also preserves us in that salvation. The idea here is, is that those who are saved by God's grace and brought into his kingdom, they are also protected so that they, they remain in that state of grace and they are brought unto eternal, eternal glory and happiness. And I think you can... You can see that from the whole tenor of this psalm, but if we would just stick with Psalm, with uh, verse 2 again, look at, look at it. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Here is where the Lord is building his kingdom. In the midst of enemies, not under safe conditions, not uh, where it is not under threat and opposition. No, it is behind enemy lines. It is, it is exposed to the, the attacks and assaults of the kingdom of darkness as well. And that's throughout this psalm, isn't there? there you can see that, that there's this, this emphasis on the fact that the Lord is at war against his enemies as he's building his church. And really, this scepter which the king wields, it is a great instrument of battle which he is using to destroy the works of the devil. But you, 
can see here, if you put these things together, is that the Lord is using a great and mighty power over all things in order to protect his church and people from their enemies. Especially if you look later on in this, in this psalm, you see there in verses 5 and 6, the Lord at thy right hand, so this would be David speaking about the Lord Christ at the right hand of the Father. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. And of course, we understand, don't we, that from the very moment that the gospel emerged into this world of darkness, as it began to spread through the nations, it always encountered opposition. The normative experience of the people of God, if they would truly live for the Lord, is that they will encounter opposition, resistance, where they have to contend with those who have great political power, that often manifests itself in persecution. And that's really what I believe the, the emphasis here is. That the Lord's mighty authority over all things, it is utilized in order to wage war against the enemies of the church and to ensure that his kingdom will advance and, and triumph over all opposition. And you see this set forth in in uh, different ways throughout the scriptures. Um, if you look at, for example, what it says in, in John chapter 10 and verse 28. And I gave them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and not one shall snatch them out of my hand. Now think about that. If, if that is really true, if Christ is saying that all of his authority is directed to this goal, that not even one of his people can be snatched out of his hands, not one of them will cease to believe upon his name until they are brought into heavenly glory. How must that involve everything in life? Because you think, think about this, believer. You know that in yourself you have every potential to fall away. If you speak just about yourself, you know that you have no great superpower that's going to keep you in the faith. You know that there are countless temptations and opposition that could cause you to reject and to deny the Lord and to turn away from, from his, his paths of life. And we know that the, the weapons of the adversary, they're not only just on the level of governments and, and people who would make various laws that make it difficult for the church. No, the real war is spiritual. Each and every one of us is a target of the devil. If you would set foot in, in a place like this, no matter what your condition, you are especially the target of the enemies of the Lord. And we know that the, he does not sleep, that he is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and that there are countless and manifold things that, that might come into our lives that would tempt us to turn away 
from King Jesus Christ. And so if it were not so, that this very king who has worked in our hearts by the gospel, if it were not so, the case that he is the same one who can say, all power in heaven and on earth is given unto me, then we would have no hope whatsoever of persevering. But this king, he directs all things in our lives, all the circumstances, all of the trials, all the afflictions, as we, we considered uh, recently. He uses those for the spiritual good of his people, not that they should perish, but that they should remain safe in his hands. That is what you can take home with you, believer. It may sometimes seem as though you're, you're going into this week again, and, and yes, you're going into a battle. Going into a battle. So many things that are going to come at you this week. Trials and, and hardships, temptations, doubts, fears, anxieties. But let me tell you something. If you would march under the banner of this great king, then who can stand against you? He is the one. He is the one who can preserve you. He is the one who will defend you against all the onslaughts of the devil. You know, as I was thinking about the words here, I was so thankful that our catechism says both defend and preserve. If it had just said defend, I could maybe think, okay, so the Lord will care for us in the same way as, as perhaps those animals on the ark were, were preserved, right? So you're on the great boat, and, and as long as you're on this great vessel, then all the waves may crash against the hull, but you will still get to the other side because you're, you're there under the, the Lord's protection. But when I think about, about that word preserve, I come to see that it applies specifically to the individual Christian. His eye is upon you. He cares for you. He will not let down even one of his people in the hour of testing in the field of battle. He leaves none behind. So we see that, that there is not only his royal authority, but also his perfect protection. But in the the third and last place, I'd like to consider briefly his eternal reign. His eternal reign. It's, it's that that I would, I would leave you with. It says that he is our eternal king. Our eternal king. What a comfort that is. We know from, from experience that, that politicians come and politicians go, even even kings and queens, they come and go. Maybe you get a good one for a few years and some, some profit to a, a physical realm may, may persist for a time. But then they are displaced by, by a wicked ruler and it all seems to become undone. That's the way it is. It's a world of flux and change. And, and it can be, be so distressing sometimes when we see all the things happening in our world. And we're just not sure where is it that we can rest our souls in the midst of such uncertainty. But I would, I would ask you to consider this great truth that he is the eternal king. Do you remember the Lord's servant Daniel? There he was brought, brought to that foreign nation of Babylon. And in the midst of all that, that uncertainty, he was called upon to do a special task, and that was to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so in the, 
when the point where all the, the different advisors were, were threatened with death, they brought forward this man who was able to explain that, that vision to the king. Do you remember what it was? The dream that had been disturbing that, that pagan king was that there was in his dream a great statue. There at the top was the, the head of gold representing Kim, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the ruler of the world at that time. And beneath that, there is the, the part of the body that was silver and then bronze and went all the way down to just the clay of the feet. And in this vision, there was that great stone that came down and smashed that, that statue. And what was it that Daniel interpreted that, that dream as, as representing? Well, he said that stone represented the kingdom of Christ. Daniel 2, verse 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. That's the way it is. Ever since the kingdom of Jesus Christ was established under the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament. It has been, as it were, the, the anvil that has worn out many hammers. Every king, every despot, every tyrant, they seek to stamp out the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And yet they are eventually brought to nothing. And yet Christ still endures. He continues to reign. Notice what it said there in verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. All of these passing kingdoms, they will just become part of his throne. A place to rest his feet. They will amount to nothing. And it doesn't mean when it says, until I make your enemies your throne, that, that he will stop being the king after they've all been vanquished. When he does return in glory and in power to bring his people unto himself, no. The sense of the, of the Hebrew and the united sense of, of all of the scripture is he will continue to reign. Continue to reign forever. And so the, the question becomes, what are you building your identity upon? Is it this eternal kingdom? Is it this eternal king? If you would would build your life on your beauty, well, that will fade away. If you would, would build your life on your business, well, that can, can fail in an instant. If you would build your life on your, on your health, well, that, that will go eventually. Would you build your life on your family, your spouse, your children? Well, what will you do when they're gone? But if you build your life on Christ... If you embrace him and you, you make him your all, then you will set your lot in with one who will reign forever and who will always care for each one of his chosen people. May the Lord be pleased to seal these things unto our hearts. Let us savor of the glory of this great mediator and let us worship and adore him. Amen. In response to the message, let us sing from Psalter 302, stanzas 1 to 3.